Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Today, I am so excited to bring one of my favorites, Dr. Hovig Artinian, back to the podcast. Dr. Artinian did a podcast with me back in February, episode number 25 on getting your sleep and insomnia. But today he's going to talk more about disordered sleep. So stay tuned for a really fun conversation. Dr. Artinian is an assistant professor of pediatrics and human development at Michigan State University, practicing at Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is board certified in general pediatrics, pediatric pulmonology, and sleep medicine. He was born in New York, go Mets, grew up in California, go Dodgers, and earned his bachelor's degree from Whittier College, Go Poets, before joining Teach for America as a middle school science teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools, while simultaneously earning his master's degree in education at John Hopkins University. He decided he needed an easier job than being a middle school teacher, so he became a doctor. The best part of his job has always been earning a child's trust and getting them to smile. The worst part of his job is when a kid vomits, because that makes him need to vomit also. When not working, his favorite place to be is the window seat of an airplane, staring out in awe at the beautiful world below. And here we are in, gosh, what, 18 months of COVID, and I can't wait till flying is kind of the norm again. But in the meantime, I am having a blast talking to so many lovely people from all over the country here in my 4 by 4 closet. So buckle your seatbelts and enjoy Dr. Artinian. Hi, Hovig. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. How about you, Leah? I'm doing well. Welcome back. I'm so excited to have you. Um, yours is one of the most popular podcast episodes I've done, so I'm glad for for an encore. I'm absolutely honored that so many people think what I have to say is interesting, but... <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to be able to chat again. Absolutely. Well, the last time we talked about a whole bunch of different kinds of sleep issues, and you and I had talked since and thought, let's focus in a little bit on disordered sleep problems and particularly um, obstructive sleep apnea or OSA. But before we get into like the nitty gritty of that, Let's just talk about some of the sleep disordered things that you see overall. Sure. So part of the reason I love sleep is that my differential really is honed in and I can think about six main domains of sleep. This is what Dr. Uh, Rosen taught us during our fellowship. It was honed in week after week. These are the six domains to always think about. And so they include, of course, sleep disorder breathing, which we're going to talk much more about today. They also include insomnia. And on the other hand of that, hypersomnolence disorders. They also include movement disorders. So do you have restless legs, for example? We also always want to consider 
uh, circadian abnormalities, which could cause someone to think that they have insomnia, or on the other hand, to think that they have hypersomnolence disorders. And so it's important to tease those out. And then of course, very common to pediatrics would be the parasomnias as well. So when we have children with sleepwalking, sleep talking, sleep screaming, et cetera. And so those are the main global view of sleep disorders. And not all of them are disorders per se. Some of them are quite common and pretty much normal for children. But that's that's my working differential. Every single child who comes in. Well, that should six things is something you can remember, right? as my other one of my other favorite attendings always used to say about pulmonary this isn't rocket science otherwise I would not be able to do it so I feel very fortunate that I found a field that I can actually do that you can you can hone in on well let's talk a little bit more about obstructive sleep apnea because I think this is a really common thing in in our population in pediatrics so what it is and what is it and what isn't it Sure. So we think of sleep apnea really as a spectrum of sleep disordered breathing symptoms. And so anytime we have a child who describes to us or that the parent describes to us that they snore and within that snoring, we're also looking for other key clues. Um, we're, we're looking for, do they have gasping breaths or choking breaths? Do they uh, have pauses in their breathing while they're sleeping? Do they sleep with their mouth open or closed? All of these little tidbits of information from the history start helping us hone in on whether you may or may not have sleep apnea. And when we think about sleep disorder breathing as a spectrum, on the one hand, there is just snoring. And about 10% of the children who present with these symptoms will basically just have snoring. On the other hand of this spectrum, we have uh, sleep apnea. And about 1% to 5% of children with these symptoms will, in fact, have sleep apnea. And then somewhere in the middle uh, between these two extremes, we have essentially upper airway resistance. And that's just a, a very vague way of saying that we're not totally sure what's going on, why they're having these symptoms, but they seem to have more resistance in their upper airway than we might otherwise want or expect. And so sometimes we have to intervene for that. Sometimes we don't. So I think, I guess one of the things I go right to as a pediatrician, just general stuff is big tonsils because we see big tonsils, but a lot of times that's normal in kids and they don't have sleep apnea. And then there's those ones that you see that we call them plus four, they're, they're kissing. And you know, the, the parents describe the kind of breathing and those we worry about. But what about what we're seeing commonly? What what would be kind of the the question route you would recommend pediatricians take? So thankfully for us, back in 2012, we had a paper that was published on this by Dr. Marcus and a group of excellent physicians that essentially asks us to ask every family at every well child check, does your child snore? And if they snore, please do more. That doesn't mean we're going to jump right to a a sleep specialist consult, but we should absolutely dig some more. And so to that end, trying to understand a little bit more about their sleep habits, sleep schedule, sleep breathing, and really getting a sense of, is this a child who needs further evaluation or is this a child who doesn't? And uh, unfortunately, 
even though history is always the most important guiding principle in our practice, when it comes to saying you do or do not have sleep apnea, the only way to really be able to tell someone, yes, your history is sleep apnea, is to get them a sleep study. The sleep study is the gold standard for diagnosing whether what you have is just snoring or is it more. But one way or the other, we're all we're asked to do is ask, do you snore? And what I ask is if you snore, please do more. I love that. I like simple. Is there a recommended checklist of questions that we should ask? I mean, I, I think of something simple like, is there a template that I could pop into my EMR, you know, a smart phrase, if you will, that would be X number of questions that I should kind of go down the list? Is there something like that? You know, if there, there are certainly lots of different templates, I should mention, and some of the more validated ones are only for adults. But truly, when we think about what we need to know for children, one of the question templates that a lot of pediatricians use is the BEARS questionnaire. And essentially, each letter of bears stands for a different thing we should think about and ask about. And so I always say, think of it as S-bear instead of bears, because in a busy, well-child clinic, if you can just ask the S, do you snore? And if the answer is no, if you don't have a lot of time left and sleep is not an issue that the parent is wanting to talk about at that visit, then it's okay to not necessarily do the rest of the bear. But if they say yes to snoring or the parent has questions about sleep, then kind of going through the rest of that bear's questionnaire is one way to really help guide the questions that we ask and the history that we obtain for, from each child. But specifically honing in on sleep disorder breathing, the main questions that I would love to, to find out when I receive a referral is, do they snore? Do they have any gasping, choking breaths? Do they have any witnessed apneas? If two or more of those are positive, then you are absolutely correct to ask for a sleep study. And then in addition to that, there's exam items that if you're able to include that in your note, really do help us, especially in the era of video visits, help guide us as the specialist to say, yep, I agree, we should definitely get the sleep study for you. And it helps us a little bit prognosticate as to whether the sleep study will be uh, positive for sleep apnea or less likely to be. And I feel like with sleep studies, because I can order one, but I think the interpretation piece is really difficult. So that's where I would see someone like you would really be helpful. It's like ordering a genetic panel. I mean, it's all well and good, but if I get stuff back and I don't know what to do with it, I'm not sure how helpful I can be. And before I forget, just because I'm in case I um, don't remember all the items, go over what the BEARS stands for. For sure. So each letter kind of stands for a, a different uh, feature of the sleep history that we want to consider. So the B stands for bedtime. So at bedtime, do they have trouble falling asleep? Do they have trouble with wanting to have multiple curtain calls, come back out asking for other things? Does the parent have to be present? The E is excessive daytime sleepiness. So is your child difficult to wake up in the morning or do they still seem groggy or sleepy? And essentially, do they still look tired during the day after a full night of sleep? The A is for awakenings. So during the night, is your child waking up multiple times, having difficulty going back to sleep? Or is there other things, are there other things interrupting their sleep? And if there are, we definitely want to hone in on could those potentially be, for example, snorting or choking breaths that are suddenly waking them up? 
another reason for us to consider getting a sleep study for them. And then the R stands for regularity and duration of sleep. So critical, critical piece of information is how many hours of sleep is your child getting and is that appropriate for their age? Because if we are underfunding a child, more so, more likely an adolescent sleep bank, then of course they're going to feel sleepiness during the day. And that sleepiness may also manifest in other ways in terms of their mental health and emotional well-being. And then the last, was there another S at the end? Uh, the S is snoring. So, oh, okay. You put yep. the S at the beginning because you like Correct. that there. Okay. Yep. Well, that kind of, you said something that kind of rings near and dear to my heart, and that's mental health issues. And so for sleep apnea, do you think if we are working up a kid for ADHD or anxiety or depression, do you think we should be putting this into our history taking? I mean, it, how does that impact behavior? Sure. So it is so important. And I have to say here in West Michigan, I think our psychiatry colleagues are really attuned, including this as part of their differential and our, our children are better off for it. Certainly having sleep problems can cause behavioral problems. It can uh, worsen inattention. It can worsen hyperactivity or irritability. In children, a lack of sleep manifests a little bit differently than adults. Whereas I might feel sleepy if I don't get enough sleep, a child might act more hyperactive, might act like they just had a ton of sugar and really just be another normal mood. They might be very overstimulated. And so it's, it is important for us to identify that. Uh, as a quick aside, it's also super important to identify that if a young child is always acting sleepy when they are awake, so if a seven, eight, nine-year-old is acting not acting, is sleepy during the day, we should feel uneasy. That's one of my other little sayings. Because a child should not be sleepy. Even if it's severe sleep apnea, most children will not manifest a sleepiness during the day. They will manifest with a more hyperactive presentation. And so, yes, when a child's being worked up for ADHD or another disorder, a similar disorder, doing the screening questions for sleep apnea is very important. But this is where I want to stress, a child without any sleep disorder breathing from a very reliable historian is unlikely to have sleep apnea. And so I don't think it's necessary to send every child who's diagnosed with ADHD for a sleep study, because if the parent comes to me and says, no, I know that my child does not snore, doesn't have any gasping breaths, doesn't have pauses, nothing. They breathe very comfortably all night long. I don't need a sleep study to help identify for them that sleep apnea is not the cause of their sleepiness, excuse me, of their hyperactivity. Well, that that seems like, you know, there are some things that rule out. So that sounds like the history, again, is really important. I, I want to go back to what you said about always sleepy, be uneasy. What else are you thinking about? You know, because you said if a kid has sleep apnea, they shouldn't be that sleepy. So what what else is in your head? You know, what's the red flag? Sure, sure. So this is where the child's body habitus does matter. A child who is normal weight will not manifest with sleepiness when they are experiencing sleep apnea. They will experience the, the behavioral changes, the hyperactivity. But if they are sleepy, which can occur in children with sleep apnea who are overweight. In those children, yes, they can manifest as sleepiness. But if a child who is normal weight is manifesting sleepiness, 
then I have to start wondering, could this be a hypersomnal disorder? And so that's where my mind starts going toward more of the hypersomnolence, things like narcolepsy as a cause of their daytime sleep. Because sleep apnea is much less likely to result in that child feeling sleepy as a result of poor sleep quality. And would you say that those things like narcolepsy are common or not that common? Narcolepsy is very rare. If we're thinking about the common things being common, sleep apnea is much than hypersomnolence. But it is important for me to ask some of those questions and really hone in on, are there any symptoms present that could suggest this is a hypersomnolence disorder? And I will say in the, in the realm of mental health, I do sometimes wonder whether some of our kiddos who are diagnosed with, for example, ADHD due to inattention, due to what appears as inattention or what appears as them not being able to focus and uh, reliably work with a teacher in the classroom. Sometimes we should just wonder. I'm not saying all these children have narcolepsy. I'm just saying that it is something I do wonder about because interestingly, the treatment in a child for narcolepsy and for ADHD is the same, usually the same thing, which is a trial of an alerting medication. And so we may inadvertently be treating with the right treatment, but maybe for the wrong diagnosis. So we're smart, but not the right reason. Correct. <laughs> Well, so what about some of the other medical conditions or comorbidities um, should we be thinking about when we're thinking about like sleep apneas? I, I guess the one that comes to mind for me is Down syndrome. Are there other things that we should be like that should definitely be in our, our you know, our mind? Uh Absolutely. So Down syndrome, of course, has very helpful and clear guidelines. And so all of our children who have Down syndrome should get a sleep study by the age of four years old, regardless of what their sleep history is. So for our children who may not even have snoring or those other symptoms that I was mentioning, but have Down syndrome, please do go ahead and um, make sure that they get their sleep studies by the age of four per the most current AAP guidelines. But other children that I very much uh, want to make sure that we don't miss are we have a very robust, actually, uh, multidisciplinary clinic here that looks at children with craniofacial differences. And so uh, a more common one being Pierre Robin. If a child has Pierre Robin, they are certainly at higher risk of having sleep apnea due to the crowded airway, since there's potentially not as much room for the tongue. They have differences in their palate as well. And so we certainly want to make sure that we are checking them with a sleep study as well. Other populations that are near and dear to my heart are one of our other very robust multidisciplinary clinics for children with neuromuscular differences. And so our children who have, for example, spinal muscular atrophy or Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we certainly want to be keeping a close eye on them and getting sleep studies because they are at higher risk of hypoventilating. And so wanting to make sure that we're not missing their CO2 levels getting too high. Because if the first time we notice it is when they're awake, then we have missed it while they're asleep for quite some time. Other kiddos to keep a close eye on are, for example, if you have a child with achondroplasia, we certainly want to get them in the sleep lab as well to make sure that we're not missing uh, sleep store breathing. And, ooh, you know, another patient population as well that we should absolutely keep near and dear to our hearts in the sleep lab are children with Prader-Willi syndrome. 
especially children who are on growth hormone, need to be very closely monitored in with sleep studies for any sleep apnea, because there are unfortunately reports of children with Prater Willi who are on growth hormone with sudden fatality, because essentially the the airway just completely obstructs as a result of the growth hormone helping with their overall symptoms, but also causing overgrowth in that upper airway and essentially resulting in complete obstruction and so severe that it results in fatality. So keeping a close eye on them and not missing sleep apnea for them or treating it if present it is very critically important. My eyebrows went up and I, I almost gasped when you said that. So growth hormone for kids that are, you know, having growth hormone deficiency, does that happen then too? Or is it just specific to Pratt or Willie? So, you know, I have to admit to you that the reports that I've read have been associated with Pratt or Willie specifically. I I have to admit to you, I'm not 100% sure whether it is or not associated with other children who are on growth hormone. I'd have to dig a little bit deeper on that. But certainly, it's something that I always want to keep in mind, especially if they have symptoms, to check in the sleep lab. It was interesting. This morning, I was listening to a podcast. The AAP has a podcast, and they were talking about a study that came out. I don't know if it was Australian or United Kingdom about taking your tonsils out for sleep apnea and that delaying the surgery may or may not make a difference. It was kind of curious. Do you know anything about that? So there have been several trials more recently looking at early TNA versus later TNA, specifically looking at the mild sleep apnea population. Because up uh, to be honest, we haven't totally been sure whether doing an early TNA or waiting in mild sleep apnea has certain benefits. Most of the studies seem to suggest that if you do an early TNA, there may be some improvement in the behavioral aspects that parents are worried about, but not necessarily significantly improved versus watchful waiting. So a child with mild sleep apnea who maybe has minimal daytime symptoms does not necessarily have to go to the OR right away for a TNA. We can give them six to 12 months observe, watch, see if there's any worsening and potentially not expose them to anesthesia right away. In the moderate to severe sleep apnea groups, the consensus still is that we should offer TNA as one of the first line treatments. Again, keeping in mind here a difference between children who are of normal weight versus children with an increased weight for their age, because children with an increased weight do tend to have Uh, residual sleep apnea, even after a TNA, where we have to then offer CPAP, for example. And so as we think about best next steps for each child, again, it has to be individualized to their overall presentation. Well, that brings me to CPAP. Is that something, I mean, can kids really do that? I mean, I think about myself, like, I don't know if I could sleep with that on. I guess if it made me sleep better, I might. But what about in kids? So that's, I think there's two key pieces to helping a child tolerate CPAP. One is creating a very wonderful environment around it. This is where we have some really amazing parents who know what 
triggers their child and know how to incentivize the behaviors that they're looking for and are able to really help the child view the CPAP as just this is how we sleep. And it doesn't even become a second thought. There are also other amazing parents who, despite their best efforts, cannot get their child to do that. And so I don't think this is, I don't mean this as a, some parents, you know, deserve awards and others don't. They all do. But some children just need a little bit more help. And so other pieces of the puzzle to, to helping a parent help their child be able to wear the CPAP, number one is the mask. The mask is so critically important. A comfortable mask makes all the difference in ensuring that CPAP compliance can improve. And so I do always ask families not to give up after the first or second mask. It took me five masks before I found one that I'm willing to tolerate. And I still say willing to tolerate. I won't give it any awards yet. But that piece of the puzzle is really important. And then there are other things that we do with our respiratory therapy colleagues to adjust the pressure, adjust how quickly it starts and ramps up to really help our kids get used to it and not be scared by it. And then we work with our sleep psychology colleagues as well for patients who need a little bit more help with the desensitization process. And so working with them first on just the mask without the CPAP blowing in their face, getting them used to having the mask on their face, what it feels like, what it looks like when they're awake, and then adding it with adding CPAP with activities that are distracting them. And so having them watch um, their favorite show while you turn the pressure on on the lowest setting and letting them kind of just breathe with it on while doing something that they really like doing can really help reduce some of the anxiety that our kids can feel around the CPAP. Ironically, these are also the same ways that we can help adults reduce their anxieties and feel more comfortable wearing their CPAP. It almost sounds like all of us should have a trial with a CPAP mask and CPAP on just so we could be more empathetic about what it's really like. It doesn't, I know you said you could uh, make it a wonderful environment. It doesn't sound that fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I always have to remind myself that even though CPAP has become pretty ubiquitous, I think most people have heard of it it's still not necessarily normal, right? And so to that end, it's totally uh, something that we should remember can take adjustment and we need to give our patients, whether adult or child, uh, a lot of room to play with it, to grow with it, and just grace as they figure out how to use it. Yeah, well, I, th I think you're a very empathetic person to, I, I mean, you, you're so kind when you say things like, you know, all parents deserve awards. I certainly think so. It's a hard <laughs> and man to have a kiddo that's not sleeping well, I, you know, because it interrupts the parents sleep. I mean, there's nothing worse than having your kid standing at your bed or wanting to be in it, you know, when you're trying to get sleep and, and then to have an irritable kid the next day because they're tired and you're tired doesn't bring on your best self. Nope. I, I mean, we see this a lot as we think about one of the sleep issues that can go hand in hand with sleep disorder breathing. Your child wakes up in the middle of the night and then ends up coming to your room. And it's always this decision point, right? Do you send them back to their own bed and potentially they don't or they fight it and it becomes a longer issue? Or do you just roll over, let them snuggle with you and call it a night? So I do always stress that there's no such thing as too much love 
you know, you're not hurting your child by letting them into your bed, but certainly it might affect your sleep and it might affect your sleep quality. And so it is also totally fine to continue working with them consistently to help them have that self-confidence to be able to go to sleep on their own, in their own bed, in their own room. But either way is okay. There's no, this is the way it must be. Well, I've often told parents there's like no laws about sleeping. I, there probably is the please don't put your baby on their stomach. That one, I, I mean, it's not a law, but it probably should be. But, you know, I, I mean, if your kid sleeps with you, I mean, it's not against the law, but it's not always that great and it's not that fun. And I, I, th- I think it's not our ideal most of the time. I mean, for some families, they want everybody in the bed and, you know, more power to you. I, that would be hard for me, <laughs> but you're yes. right. But I also hope that families won't judge their family's routines against others. So if you have a family friend where the kid has figured it out, please don't view that as like, oh, I'm not as good at, at something around bedtime routines as a parent. That's just not true. Every child has different needs, different timelines for picking up on some of the things. And ultimately, let me reassure you that there are no case reports of children who had to ask their parents to sleep in their room more than others, ending up being, you know, 40-year-olds who are still sleeping in their parents' beds. So... Thank, good, thank goodness for that. Well, I love, I'm sure that when people come to see you, that they one, feel reassured and two, don't feel judged. And I think that's, you know, we, we don't need to be parent shaming like it's all your fault because that is not particularly helpful to making changes. So I I, I think your your humor and kindness probably really makes a big difference in the care that you give. I sure hope so. Although I, I know sometimes it can be frustrating because the solution isn't something that I can give out. It's not a tablet. It's not a medication per se, but it is very much working with our hero parents to implement strategies and implement behavioral changes that they can't implement, but it's hard. It's very hard to do it consistently, especially at two in the morning. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk about, are there any prevention strategies? I know we talk about children that live in larger bodies and that one is a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast, but I know um, certainly those kids that are on the high end of the spectrum, that that's something, but are there any other prevention strategies for disordered sleep? So it depends again on what age group we're looking. So in infants who may also have sleep apnea, We always want to consider a few things. One could be reflux. So if an infant is experiencing significant central apneas, and so again, within this sleep disorder breathing spectrum, we may have central apneas as well. And so in that case, screening for and treating for reflux can significantly reduce the degree of central sleep apnea they may have. And so that's one example for preventive strategies. In our older children having lots of great daytime activities. So really helping them stay active, make lifestyle decisions around activities that are going to keep them away from the screens, away from the video games, and much more potentially outside when weather and safety features permit, as well as just playing, 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 lots of movement. And then, of course, nutritional choices, making nutritional choices that are healthy, not just for the child, but for the whole family, can really help create an environment that really promotes those sort of good choices. 
and reduces the risk of developing sleep apnea. To that end, not necessarily a preventive strategy, but another prognosticating historical feature is do the parents have snoring or sleep apnea? And for that, I, I literally, every time I ask this, I also have to quickly say, don't worry, parents, this is a safe place. You can tell me because um, almost invariably one or the other parent doesn't want to tell on the other one. But usually I can get the kids to tell me which parents are snoring. And that just helps me know, is there a higher chance that this child is going to have sleep apnea? Because that is considered a hereditary feature. Interesting. I guess the other thing that we didn't touch on, which is, again, another whole topic is trauma and, you know, kids that live in scary environments where there might be violence, where there might be, you know, they're in a a mission, they don't have a home to live in that's a regular place. Those kids may not sleep very well, but that may be a whole different reason. So I think we just have to be mindful. Do you see that sometimes? We absolutely see children who experience very rough times resulting in difficulty with sleep onset or sleep maintenance. Um, And to that end, it is so important, again, as one of the physicians who will be potentially a first touch point if you are the the primary care pediatrician, to, to really hone in on that and see if you're identifying any features that suggest a a scarier home environment for the kiddo. And then we are happy to work together on those features. Although again, here in West Michigan, we are so fortunate that we have, even though of course there's never going to be enough pediatric psychiatrists, we still have an amazing team of psychiatry colleagues who work very closely with with children who have already been identified as needing that sort of support. And so much to their credit, before they get to me, they are plugged in usually. But, you know, I practiced in California before I came here and where I did my residency and fellowship, I I literally can count on one hand the number of times any of my patients had access to a pediatric psychiatrist. So certainly a lot of pediatricians end up filling that role. And so we have to be cognizant of that presentation. Yeah. And I think, again, when we're dealing with those behavior, you know, behaviors that include sleep issues, it's kind of multifactorial. I mean, they could have sleep apnea and have trauma-based sleep difficulties, you know, and to that, as far as support, certainly in Michigan, we have MC3, which is one of those child psychiatry access programs. So if you're in a rural area, if you're in our upper peninsula and you don't have access, you can by phone. And that, mm-hmm. and that's true in, I want to say 30 states. And with the recent funding, there's funding now for to develop those in all 50 states and territories in Puerto Rico. So I, I think that's just a you know, a resource people should know about. And again, another huge plug for integrated behavioral health. It's really helpful if you have somebody in your practice that can help you do that work. I think it's a, it should be a necessity, not a luxury. But I, I think that, you know, especially when you're trying to tease all these things out, And I just did a podcast recording that will come out around the same time with Andy Garner, who wrote the policy statement on uh, toxic stress and relational health. Mm -hmm. So that's just a whole nother thing. But I I think, you know, sort of this broad perspective about, you know, if if the symptom is the sleep. Well, what's in that differential? And it could be very broad. So it sounds like you are really got your 
your net is wide when you're looking at what's what's going on. Sure. Uh, thank you for kind of framing it in that way, because certainly sleep most of the time ends up being a symptom of something else. Certainly there are times where we are the primary issue and we got to take care of that. But usually I find, especially as it relates to insomnia, we are looking at trying to identify and dig deeper into something else that could be going on. Probably true about most things that have to do with kids' behaviors that are difficult for us, whether it's not wanting to sleep or throwing tantrums or not doing well at school. Is it, it, There's lots going on. And, um, you know, so we have to be broad-minded and, again, cast our nets wide when we're thinking. Well, thank you so much. Was there any other takeaways that you wanted to leave uh, listeners with? I just would stress, again, if they snore, please do more. And if you have a child who's always sleepy, please feel a little uneasy. And we are always here to help out as your friendly neighborhood sleep doctors. Well, that's great. I, I love easy things to remember. So I love the if you, if they snore, please do more. So we'll, we'll leave it with that. Well, thanks again, Hovig. I so appreciate you. And I know that you are a wonderful clinician and make your patients and parents much, much more at ease. So thank you for the work you do. Thank you for your kind words and for all the work you're doing for Michigan and really nationally with this podcast. Well, thank you and have a good day. Well, that was another fun conversation. I so enjoy Hovig. He just lifts up my day. So here are the takeaways from today's conversation. Number one, when considering difficulties in pediatric sleep, here are some domains to consider. Sleep disordered breathing, insomnia, hypersomnia, movement disorders, circadian rhythm abnormalities, and parasomnias. Number two, at every well-child visit, ask, does your child snore? If yes, you can follow with the bear's questioning, B for bedtime difficulties, E for excessive daytime sleepiness, A for awakenings, and R is sleep regular and what's the duration? Number three, if they snore, do more. Hovig was pretty clear about this that, you know, if a child is snoring, you really need to kind of dig into that a little bit deeper. So again, just remember that BEARS acronym that might help you. Number four, is the child always sleepy? Be uneasy. Consider behavioral concerns children that are living in larger bodies or may have obstructive sleep apnea, hypersomnias, for example, narcolepsy, can all present with this excessive sleepiness. Number five, in children, poor sleep can look like ADHD, depression, mood disruptions, and irritability. Number six, consider the environment. It could be another E. For example, is the neighborhood safe? Is there trauma in this child's life? Is there domestic violence? homelessness, food insecurity, is the child in the foster care system. You may want to cast a wider net with your differential to make sure that you've considered trauma as an underlying cause for why a child is not sleeping well. Number seven, if you are truly worried about obstructive sleep apnea, a sleep study is the gold standard. You might let a pulmonologist help you with the interpretation, and I know that's always been difficult for me. You order a sleep study, you get it back, and you're just not sure what it exactly means. So a pulmonologist can really help with that. Number eight, what about CPAP? Can you make it work for kids? Dr. Artinian describes several things that can help. One is make a wonderful environment. The parent can convey, this is just how we sleep. 
make sure the mask fits, and work with a respiratory therapist and pulmonologist to adjust the pressures and airflow. And it may take a child a little while to acclimate to having a CPAP. And sometimes you just have to try multiple times, um, especially with mask fitting. Number nine, other conditions where sleep disorders should be considered. Down syndrome. A sleep study should be done by the age of four. Craniofacial disorders such as Pierre Robin. Neuromuscular disorders such as spinal muscle atrophy and muscular dystrophy. Achondroplasias. Prader-Willi, especially if they're on growth hormone, which was new to me, and if there is a parent history of sleep apneas. Number 10, what about prevention? Consider reflux in infants. Keep kids active and minimize screen time. Serve nutritious meals. And always make sure that the child is living in a safe, stable, nurturing environment because then a child can relax and sleep. So thanks again for joining me, and I hope tonight you have a restful sleep. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.